0: I would invite you, if you would, uh, this morning to find the book of Colossians. We're going to be continuing on in our study this morning on the one another's. We've already looked at a couple of these, and we're going to look at a couple today and a couple more yet, Uh, but we are picking up in Colossians where we were studying last week. And if you're not uh, particularly familiar with the Bible, Colossians is in what's called the New Testament. It's back toward the end of the Bible. And so if you could find that, if you need help, someone would be glad to help you find it. And uh, we're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. And as I did last week, I'm going to go ahead and begin reading in verse 1. And I'm going to read down through our text this morning, which is verses 12, rather, through verse 17. And as I read these verses, I would invite you to follow along as we read them. Uh, Notice what it says, Colossians 3, verse 1. If then, as I mentioned last week, we could understand that is since then you have been raised with Christ... Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, here is the section we've been studying together, verse 12. Put on, therefore, or put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, As if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Verse 14, our text for this morning, 14 through 17, and above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word this morning as we come to it. I pray, God, that we would uh, apply these verses to our lives, understand them, what they mean, and then how they are called. we are then called to change and how we are called to live. So we ask your blessing on our time around your word this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let me just quickly, quickly review verses 12 down through verse uh, 13. As I mentioned, we studied this last week, but in verse 12, Paul begins by um, addressing this church at Colossae, talking to them about who they are in Christ, that they were elect in Christ, he talks about the fact that they are called into one body, whether they were Jew or Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, Christians were called into one body, and as believers then, they were called to exhibit uh, certain characteristics of what it meant to be a follower of Christ, and Paul gives us uh, the list of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience and forgiveness. And Paul says that that then leads us into the one another's that Paul gave to us. We studied last week being forbearing with one another and also forgiving one another. Now, as verse 13, verse 14 rather, as we pick up uh, the text this morning, Paul now says there's another aspect to this that we need to consider and some other um, angles, if you will, to see this through and to other one another's, another a way to live this unity out in the body of Christ. And he begins in verse 14 by saying, above all, put on love. Now, we have already talked about love one another. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. We looked at 1 John 3 verse 11 that says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. But it's telling to me that as the Apostle Paul is writing to this church and he's Going through the attitudes that we are supposed to have. He's moving through the one another's that we are supposed to practice in a reciprocal kind of relationship that we are being forbearing with one another and we are forgiving one another. And the reality is that is impossible apart from understanding love. And so Paul says, above all, then put on love. We've seen this word before, it's a Greek word and duo which means to put on, to sink into clothing. We saw this also in Ephesians 6, 11. That means to dress yourself, to put on love, to dress yourself in love. Now, for many years, um, most of you know this, but um, we lived in Vermont uh, on two separate occasions. We lived there for a total of about 10 years. And when we moved there the second time, Jordan was actually born in Vermont, when we moved there Uh, When our kids were very, very young, our two oldest were born in Florida, and then we moved back to Vermont. And Vermont gets a little bit of snow from time to time. And we had a sledding hill right outside of our house in our Christian school where we were in Vermont. At recess time, the elementary kids would go out and they would sled. That was their big activity. They would go out and sled, and especially in the wintertime, obviously. But when you would walk down the hallway of our Christian school, there was rows and rows and rows of boots and hats and gloves and snow pants and all of this. The kids had to have a separate set of that stuff to keep it at school, so they had to drag it back and forth every day. Well, when you'd watch these kids and they would get dressed, they'd put on all these big clothes to go out into the snow, and then the last thing they would do is put on this big, huge winter coat that would protect them. And when I think about when Paul says, above everything else, you got to put on love. You have got to dress yourself in such a way that your life is encased, it is encapsulated, it is wrapped in biblical, Christ like love. That Jesus laid down his life for us and for our sins because. He was the Lamb of God who God sent into this world to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins. That kind of love, only Christ-like, self-sacrificing love can produce the forbearance and forgiveness that God calls us to through Paul in the previous text, that Paul says in this verse that it gives us harmony, it gives us unity, it binds us together so that we can firmly stand on truth. Christ's love was demonstrated for us on the cross of Calvary. And then in verse 13, Paul says that as believers, as followers of Christ, that as Christ has forgiven us, we are to forgive one another, and then we are to live in this kind of love. Back in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 14, Paul said, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In verse chapter 1, rather, of Colossians, Paul writes this, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach for him. Notice this tight-knit connection between love and forgiveness, between love and forbearance. And so Paul says, above all, above humility, humility is certainly important, above kindness, above compassion, above meekness, above patience, you have to put on love. Now, Paul continues as he's laying the groundwork for what he's going to tell us in the next one another. Notice at the end of verse 14, he says it binds everything together in perfect harmony. And then verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. This is very interesting to me because as he's talking about love, he now turns his attention to this issue of peace. Christ, the peace that Christ provided for us by reconciling us, that while we were yet, yet enemies with God, He reconciled us through the shed blood of Christ, through faith in Him, through the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. We can be reconciled to a holy and righteous God, which gives us eternal peace in that we understand where we will spend eternity. We have peace with God. We are no longer His enemy. We are no longer distant from him, but notice this one little word that I want to spend a moment on. The peace of Christ, peace, tranquility, let it rule your heart. This word rule is a very interesting Greek word. It's grabuo. It means to be an umpire to decide, to determine, to direct, to control. He says, as a believer, a quiet, tranquil peace that comes from knowing Almighty God should control your heart. It should decide for you. Determine for you the words you're going to speak, the actions you're going to take, the responses you're going to show. It should rule over you, dictate to you how you are going to live. I umpired a few baseball games in my life, and I remember you know, I went, you watch these umpires on baseball, and they I won't do it in front of a group of people, but, you know, strike three, you know, you're out. You know, I wanted to practice all this to be this great umpire, and truth is, I hated it. I didn't enjoy it at all. Um, but I remember this one call that I made. It was a terrible call, horrible call. And the coach comes after me, you know, and he's like, yeah, it's a terrible call. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, it sure was. Um but I didn't say that. And the, the pitcher knew it was a bad call. The catcher knew it was a bad call. I was a home plate umpire. And I made a terrible call. And this guy was going, so I give him some made-up excuse as to why I made the call that I did. And it was so ridiculous. I can still see his face. He was like, huh? So if you ever want to dismantle an angry coach or parent, just tell him something ridiculous that confuses them. And he went back and forgot the whole thing. But the 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 picture here of umpiring means... This is what makes the call. This is the authority in your life. God's peace. I was thinking about peace in relation to sports. And how often people lose their minds at athletic events. Fights. Murders. All kinds of crazy stuff. Right? It's like they're ten. They're 10 years old. There is no reason to lose your mind. They're 10. And I sit and I watch when believers act like children because their team isn't playing well or an umpire makes a bad call or whatever, and we lose our minds. You know what you're saying to the whole world? The peace of God does not rule your heart. Now, that's not just true in athletics. That's true in any aspect of our life. When we lose our cool, fly off the handle, whatever word works for you, this illustrates that. And if I am just the antithesis of peace because I am behaving in such a way that dishonors God, then the peace of God is not ruling your heart. This peace that Paul is talking about comes from personally knowing Christ. This kind of peace with God, it surpasses all human understanding. He says this is supposed to be the determining principle in how we behave and how we treat one another. Christians are to allow this kind of peace to rule their hearts so that we can express kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forgiveness, And then Paul throws in, kind of in for good measure, and he says, oh yeah, and by the way, while you're living at peace, you also should be thankful. Notice, by the way, notice how intricately all these words are combined. That when we think about loving one another, well, there has to be peace ruling in my heart in order for me to love. In order for me to be thankful, my heart has to be ruled and dominated and dictated and determined by The peace of God, because quite frankly, if you want an excuse in your life to be unthankful and miserable, there's lots of them. There's always a reason to be mad about something or about someone, or there's always something to be worked up about. There's always something to be unthankful for and critical of. That is always true. But if we are living in a spirit of hypercriticalism and we are living with anger and resentment, and we're difficult, and we're arrogant, and we're pride, prideful. You, my dear friend, are not allowing the peace of God to umpire your heart, and you are not living a thankful life for what Christ did for you on the cross. And so Paul comes at this very strongly to make sure that we are living in such a way that brings honor to Christ, because without Christ-like love in your heart— you will never be at peace and you will never be thankful. Without Christ-like love dominating your heart, you will never be forbearing or forgiving. So Paul says, above all, put on love so the peace of Christ rules in your heart and be thankful. Now, notice verse 16. We now get to our next one another. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The words of Christ, the teachings of Christ, the Scripture, let it dwell in you. As peace, pictured as an umpire, dictating our life, controlling our life, dwell here when it says allow, allow Scripture to dwell in your life. It's enkoyo is the Greek word. It means to dwell in, metaphorically, it means to feel at home. To dwell inside your heart in the way that it influences you to do what is right. The picture here is allowing the gospel message, the truths of Scripture, to take up residence in your heart so that it infiltrates every nook and cranny of your life and it influences the words that you speak, it influences the actions that you take and the reactions that you show, that there's no place in your heart and life, that Scripture is not permitted to influence and impact your life. Let it dwell in you richly. Now, what do we do with it? Do we just accumulate knowledge? Do we just accumulate more Bible knowledge and so we can dwell on it and think on it in ourselves? No. Paul says, When you allow God's word to dwell in you richly, you now are called to two actions. You are called to teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Paul says that this knowledge that we have, we are supposed to take it, teach it, and apply it. Now, I know what some people might be thinking. Who who am I to teach anybody anything about the Bible? I only know a fraction of what the Bible says and teaches. I read this principle a number of years ago from a business person, but I think it applies. Is that in order to teach someone, you need to know 10% more than the other person. Now, let me ask you a question. Are there believers in your life right now that you you know 10% more Scripture than they do? Are there people in your life that you have experienced 10% of the hardships and difficulties and trials of life that you could use combined with Scripture to teach somebody else? See, we live in this mindset as the church in America today that teaching is only for the professional. It's only for the seminary graduates. It's only for the Christian school teachers. It's only for a select group of people. My dear friend, first of all, those those delineations did not even exist when Paul wrote this and said, your responsibility as a believer who knows Christ and understands Scripture, your job is to teach. Your job is also to admonish. Now, let's take a minute and look at these couple of words. Let's take teach first. Teach comes from the Greek word didasko, which is where we get our English word didactic from. It means to hold a discourse with someone else in order to instruct them. It means to explain or to expound something to another person, to instruct through orderly arrangement of truth. Now, time is slipping away, and Wes will be very angry with me if I don't get to this, at least for a moment. I'll get to a little bit more maybe. We'll see. Is that this teaching takes place, this is a teaching setting. Now, I don't give you typically a lot of opportunity to respond back, connect groups. I try very hard to teach that through asking questions and getting people to engage. This setting is very much kind of a lecture format, whereas other times it's discussion-based. So sometimes this instruction is very formal. It's a It's a teacher teaching. It's a connect group leader leading some kind of conversation. It's a teacher in a classroom. It's very formal. Other times, this instruction happens when you're sitting in a coffee shop with someone, you're sitting in a living room, and it's just casual conversation, and you hear them say something that's not right. It's not biblical. It's not correct. It's something that you would lovingly teach them. Hey, you know what? The scripture actually says this. And get this, the Apostle Paul says that much of this teaching, at least some of this teaching and admonition, which we'll get to in a moment, happens when we sing together. You're welcome, Wes. This is the moment. You realize that when we get together and we gather on a Sunday morning, we are not sitting together, Monday mornings is when our staff meetings are, we are not sitting around saying, Man, how long, uh, what can we do to fill 30 minutes before Jay gets up to preach? we got to entertain everybody with something. That is the farthest thing from our minds. If we entertained you today, we we are apologetic for that. That was not our intention. Is that when you stand as a believer in Christ and you use the musical instrument that God gave to you, your voice, you are speaking truth to the people around you. You are admonishing them and the people around you. I love what Wes said. If you sing the wrong note, sing it loud. My old football coach said, if you block the wrong person, hit him hard. Same principle. And so he says, you know what? The body of Christ, there is a function to it. You function together when you get and you raise your voices together and you sing praise to God. You sing truth to God. You are doing it not for show, not for entertainment, not to fill time. You are doing it to teach and admonish one another. We sang two of my favorite songs today, and I appreciate that. From Everlasting and This is Amazing Grace. I love, to, I love those songs. I learned this past Christmas time, we were at Montreal College where our daughter is a student, and one of their students at Montreal College co-wrote the song From Everlasting. Tremendous text based on Psalm 90, beautiful song, teaching, sometimes formal, sometimes informal, sometimes through singing. But here's the one that we don't want to talk much about anymore in American culture, and that is admonish one another. It comes from the Greek word nutheto. If you're familiar with the movement, started a number of years ago with Jay Adams, nuthetic counseling. Now, more often commonly called biblical counseling, comes from this Greek word. Neufetic, to admonish, to warn, to exhort, to rebuke, to warn, or to strongly encourage. In the New Testament, this word admonish means to counsel above the avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. When an admonition is done correctly, we are encouraging a fellow Christian to change the course of their life based on Scripture, not based on our own opinion or preference. Teaching and admonition, as I mentioned, both take place sometimes in a formal setting, sometimes in a personal setting. I would suggest that admonition generally is done in private. It's not something that is typically done Publicly, We were talking in our Connect group today um, about when the Apostle Paul confronted Peter publicly. Why did he admonish Peter publicly? Because he sinned publicly. His action was committed in front of others. So let me just very quickly give you four observations about teaching and, and, and admonishing one another as we think about this from a New Testament church perspective. Number one, Truth is not a weapon that we use to harm people emotionally and spiritually. Remember where we've been? Above all, put on love. So, when we get to the issue of teach and admonish, anytime the motivation for either one of those is anything other than the love of Christ, you're better to keep your mouth shut. Truth is not a weapon that we use to harm people emotionally or spiritually, or we use it as a personal insult to that person or an attack to that person. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. He says a few verses later, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So yes, we are called to teach. We are called to admonish. But this instruction must be undergirded with love. And by the way, Paul in this very text in Colossians, I'll get it out, Colossians 3 says that we are to instruct and admonish one another with wisdom. Being wise in how we communicate. I would suggest also that not only is it to be undergirded with wisdom, but it's supposed to be compassionate and humble and tactful so that it can produce the change that God wants in that person's heart and life. So truth, number one, is not a weapon. Number two, truth must be taught and applied even at the risk of creating temporary discomfort. If you thrive on confronting people, you better check your heart about that. Most people confront people with a little more resonance than that. Sometimes to the point of being resonant, we don't just ever get around to confronting at all. Truth must be taught, it must be applied, even at the risk of creating temporary discomfort to you and the person you're speaking to. Have you you ever heard people say this? I love them way too much to confront them. What you are actually saying is you love you too much to confront them because you know on the other side of that confrontation, there's going to be conflict. Just be honest with yourself. If you really love that person, think think about how foolish that is for a minute. I love you so much, I'm not going to tell you to run out into the street anymore. I love you too much. Do you? That sounds like hate to me. I love you too much to tell you that your adultery is sin. I love you too much to tell you that your arrogance is coming across as condescending and you're hurting people. I love you too much to tell you that your lying has become a life-dominating problem. I I love you too much to tell you that your hatred for your brother or sister in Christ is ungodly. Who do you really love in those statements? You love you because we don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be dismissed. We don't want to have conflict. Paul says this, by the way, in 2 Corinthians 7. He said, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, not because I upset you, but because you were grieved into repentance. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul says, my purpose in speaking was not to offend you or hurt you or make you angry or upset you. My purpose was for you to repent. So I'm not sorry that I made you mad briefly. Because you repented. Proverbs twenty nine one says, "He who is often rebuked yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing." Proverbs thirteen eighteen. Whoever heeds reproof is honored. I read an article this week called "Uprooting Sensibility: The Plain Speech of Godly Men." I think this article caught my attention because. I've been rereading Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen. Great book, by the way. Don't make fun of me. I'm a a nerd. Uprooting Sensibility, the plain speech of godly men. Greg Morris is the writer. He said this, and I'm quoting him. He, He said, Jesus, if on earth today would uproot much of our sense and sensibilities, his words would be quoted with scorn online. Many frail plants would be uprooted. A politically correct cross would be raised. Many Christians today, including pastors, need to be more comfortable giving plain statements that displease true assessments without the sugary coating and, like Jesus, remain unmoved when they are received unfavorably. End quote possible that you are so afraid of irritating people or causing conflict that you have stopped speaking the truth. You have stopped rightfully and lovingly admonishing those who are in sin. I read, I read another article this morning, and I don't want to spend lots of time on this, but it was talking about the idea of counterfeit grace that we just so often believe that Bonhoeffer wrote about this, by the way, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. We are just so often afraid <clears throat> excuse me, to confront anybody because they believe any of their actions are just okay to commit and to do. Let me give you a couple more. Number three, Speaking the truth will not spare you, will not always spare you from rejection. Jesus was perfect in every way. Perfectly kind, not nice, perfectly kind, perfectly humble, perfectly gracious, with perfect intentions, and they killed him. Why would we expect to be treated differently than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? The more Jesus spoke the truth, the more they wanted to hang him on a cross. The more Jesus called people to repentance, the more angry people became. Now, don't misunderstand. Please don't go out of here today and make everybody as angry as you possibly can. That is not what I'm saying. But when we speak the truth in love, you should expect there will be people who will reject you. There will be people who no longer want anything to do with you. Number four, teaching and admonishing one another must be communicated in love and correctly applied. Let me say that again. Teaching and admonishing must be, must be communicated in love and correctly applied. Quote, Proverbs, once again, chapter, chapter 9 says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man and cures injury, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is in sight. Now Paul goes into singing together, one to another, teaching, admonishing each other as we sing and as we raise our voices to Christ. So in closing, let me just give you two final quick applications. Number one, we must foster relationships within the body of Christ that promote this type of frank conversation. Teaching and admonishing one another is most effective in the context of a relationship. Here's what often happens. The closer we get to someone, the more hesitant we are to confront them. I can't do that. I'm their friend. I can't. I can't admonish them. I'm like their BFF. We're like tight. No, that's why it should be you. Because within the context of this relationship, it is the most effective. I mean, let's let's be honest. Admonishment that is lobbed like a hand grenade over a wall from somebody who doesn't know you and doesn't know the situation is generally not received very well. I've had people do that through the years. They they know everything about how you ought to be doing something. It's like, you don't even know what you're talking about. Okay, thank you. And you walk away because it's like, they don't even know the situation. An anonymous equals coward. If you can't sign your name to it, don't write it. If you can't sign your name to it, don't say it. Paul says, if you truly love that person, admonish them, teach them in love. Number two, Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. Therefore, we must be willing to agitate people in love, not because you're an agitator and because you're difficult and just a pain, but we are willingly Willing to agitate people in love and willing to be rejected in the name of lovingly sharing God's truth. So, let me ask you. Have you primarily, ultimately dressed yourself in the love of Christ? Does the peace of God control your life, control your heart, Dictate your decisions? Are you truly, authentically thankful for what God has done through sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sin? And in all of that, how much do you really love the body of Christ? Are you willing to be forbearing? Are you willing to be forgiving? Are you willing to instruct? And are you willing to lay aside your comfort in order to lovingly admonish one who is heading down a road to destruction? Paul says that if we do these things, then guess what we get? Unity, harmony, love, a church that shows the world what it means to genuinely be a follower of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are are encouraged yet deeply challenged by these verses. God, it is difficult at times living in and around people because we are all still very sinful, And yet, Lord, you have left with us the responsibility to share the truth, speak the truth, sing the truth in a way that we would be instructing and teaching others guarded by your love for us and guarded by the peace that resides in our hearts. So, God, I pray in our closing moments of this service today that as we sing, we would be mindful of what we have just heard, And if there's someone here today that is unsure of their redemption, unsure of their salvation, that they would get questions answered before they leave this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.